if you're new here to Canyon Creek Church, by the way, my name is Scott, and I'm the pastor here at Canyon Creek Church in the Palouse. We are so glad to have you. We want to get to know you, and so um, this is part of our welcome. Uh, we'd love to, like, connect, and the way that we do that is uh, if you received a program coming in this morning, uh, the perforated section on the bottom of it is called our connection card, and uh, we understand that visiting a church can be a little bit scary, intimidating, uh, kind of, like, weird, maybe, just so you, you know, just so you know, we've been there, all of us have been there, and uh, uh, this church isn't even like four and a half years old. So we're, you know, we're just figuring it out too. Uh, but we like to get to know you anyway. And so if you feel like, you know, just have a few minutes during the service, fill out as much as you feel comfortable, um, and then uh, just drop it in the offering bucket as, the, as it goes by at the end of the service. In addition to that, there's a space on here for some prayer requests, and we'd love to um, just join with you in prayer to see what God is doing in your life and to kind of follow forward to uh, just really some incredible answers to prayer that we've been able to see. So I'm, 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 I'm loving today. I'm loving the feel of today. Just love all of you guys. Uh, I'm really chomping at the bit to get going on the message today as we continue our series, Left His Mark. It's a walk through the book of Mark and the teachings of Jesus. We're big on Jesus here at Canning Creek Church. We love Jesus, love talking about him, love uh, just you know, making his name famous, and that's kind of what we do. So um, I, I'm, I'm just really excited about it. Last week was our Vision Sunday, and if you guys were here, just a part of that, like, it was phenomenal. I was exhausted uh, and full of chili. Um, I went home, man, grabbed some Beano, and just sat down in my chair, and I was, like, I was exhausted, but, like, seriously grateful, uh, just kind of overwhelmed, actually, with a sense of love for our church. Uh, I just like thinking about what God is doing and what he's going to do in 2019 and going forward is just honestly like if you didn't hear me say it last week it's really been one of the greatest honors of my life to serve as your pastor here at Canyon Creek Church and so I'm really looking forward to what's ahead for us and um, I'm thankful of the way you guys serve I'm uh, you know whether you're part of Chi Alpha or you're regular attender here at Canyon Creek Church if you're serving um, that's a lot of you we are we're really engaged at this church with giving and serving. And uh, I just love how you guys do that. I don't, I don't know what, where you, how, how, what made you so awesome, but you are awesome. And so I'm thankful and blessed beyond measure just to really have a church that cares so much about the community. This last week, uh, we began our family promise on the Palouse, um, which was awesome. I had a chance to serve with my wife. And, uh, and by the way, Kristen Baker, are you here? Kristen, I, Kristen, you did a phenomenal job organizing it and everything. Kristen, she is, she is just, uh, she cares about people, and she put it together. Everybody knew where to go, what to do, and I'm so impressed, Kristen. Um, it just enables us to do more and to serve families. This is homeless families that we get to be a part of, just helping them through a couple of days out of a week, and it was, it was meaningful to us, but, you know, I think to the families as well. So these are the kinds of ways that we serve in our church. Today, we're going to continue through the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today, so if you want to open your Bibles or pull out your smartphone and follow along with us as we dive into God's word. Let me pray for us though, because today's got some, like some big concepts. We're going to be talking about faith, belief, and unbelief. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, I've been in church for a while. I've heard, heard all about that, you know. Uh, maybe you haven't heard it in quite this way. And so I'm going to pray that the Lord, and I'm really believing that God is going to do something today in your hearts that maybe even uh, months from now, 
could be years from now that you could look back at and today it could be a turning point for you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's, that's really honestly my prayer. Even if that happens to just one or two people, um, it will be well worth the effort. So let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, today this is not about anything that I would say to drive an agenda. And I pray, God, that you would use your word preeminently to set the tone for this whole day, this whole uh, next 40 minutes, 35 minutes uh, that we have together, God, that you would transform our understanding of what it means to believe in you and to have faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as you're turning to Mark chapter 6, I wanted to kind of like let you know a couple of really interesting statistics about America. This is the country I live in. I love America, and I'm not here to bash on America or to tear it down or anything, but just to kind of give you a sense of the reality of the way people respond to questions about faith and where they stand in relationship to belief and unbelief. So, um, and some of these statistics might be familiar to many of you if you've uh, you know, uh, read or heard about some of the recent you know, movement towards secularism and that kind of thing. We're not going to get into it to a, a really deep level. Just, first of all, three out of four people in America still will say that they believe in God. They believe that there is a God. So regardless of what that looks like uh, it, and what they identify as that God, they do believe in a God. Three out of four Americans, and that number is slightly going down. It's roughly between 70, 75%, depending on the poll, depending on the methodology. But anyway, it's still about three quarters of us believe in God. Now, seven out of 10 believe that there's a Jesus and that he is uh, either a prophet or he's the son of God or that he came into the world. And so, uh, so they identify that there's a Jesus, that some, in some way he's significant to them. Sem seven out of 10 people. And uh, it's really interesting actually, when you consider that out, you know, out of that seven out of 10 people professing Jesus, that there's kind of a big gap because the truth is there's a lot of people that aren't really living a life that sort of indicates that maybe they are following after Jesus or reflecting the teachings of Jesus, but they at least acknowledge that he exists. And the truth is, is so many of us, and many of us even in this room, will live occasionally as if he doesn't exist at all. We'll profess him and we'll say that we believe in him, but we are living as if he doesn't exist in a practical sense at all. It's called practical atheism, if you've ever heard that term. It just means you, you believe in a God or you believe in Jesus, but the way that you're living your life kind of indicates that you don't really give a rat about him. You know, that, like, you don't, you're not following him. You're not trying to live for him. You're in all sense and per, like practically an atheist. And so living as if God doesn't exist. There's another term out there and I heard a pastor say it. So the Christian atheist. And at first it sounds like a philosophical tautology. Like how is that impossible? It's just impossible. How can you be a Christian and an atheist? But the idea behind that term is someone that believes in Jesus, but lives as if he does not exist. So you might believe in Jesus. Jesus is important to you. Um, I put Jesus in my life somewhere next to my books and my CDs and my music collection or next to my hobbies, but he's not an integrated part of my life. And so Jesus, uh, it basically, as far as my day-to-day -day existence, uh, doesn't matter to me. That's, that's a Christian atheist, someone who believes in Jesus, but lives as if he does not exist. 
But I want to go to a verse that sets us up for the whole conversation today. It sets us up in, in Hebrews chapter 11 for Mark 6. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read it. It's going to um, guide us as we look at what faith is and belief is. And the first thing it says is without faith and without faith, Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please him. Let's stop there for a second. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you want to please God? Are you interested in pleasing God at all? Well, then it's kind of important to know that without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you can stack up for yourself all of the good works that you could possibly do and be as good as you want. But if you don't have faith in him, you don't really believe in him, then you cannot please God. It's kind of an important first step. This is very pivotal in our understanding of our relationship to God. For whoever would draw near to God must do two things. First thing that he has got to do is believe that he exists. So that we just talked about that, covered that. Believe that he exists. But the other thing is that he rewards those who seek him, who seek him, who seek to know him, who seek to understand him, who seek a relationship with him. So it's not just an issue of belief, it's an issue of seeking. And those two things together provide a a framework and a context in which faith can flourish and a relationship with God that's dynamic and active and alive can take root in in our hearts. But what about unbelief? What does that look like? And what is the, what is the, other side of the coin here because you can either believe in Jesus or you cannot believe in him but it's important to understand that too and when we get into Mark chapter 6 we see unbelief in action picking it up in verse 1 right away he went away from there where he was and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him so his hometown is where Nazareth, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, right? So Nazareth, I'm going to paint a little big picture and let you know what it is. I'm a kind of a geography guy. And so when you think about uh, Israel in this time of Jesus, Nazareth is a very, very small town. And it's up in this region called Galilee. And if you were to start in Jerusalem, you wouldn't be in Galilee. You would actually be in Judea. So this is where like the hardcore Jewish religion, the the Jewish people would live. Uh, These are the people that are super proud of their faith and they would live in uh, Judea. As you travel further north, you're going to get into a region called Samaria. And you know that the Samaritans and in Samaria, kind of sketchy. They have a bad rap in scripture. You know, the good Samaritan is kind of somebody that you know, is held out as like maybe a bit unclean, surprising that they would, you know, do what they did. Uh, there's the woman at the well in Samaria. There's a conversation that Jesus has. has. And then, but if you go further north, then you're going to get into Galilee. And there in the southern part of Galilee is this little town called Nazareth. Now, before the New Testament, Nazareth didn't appear anywhere in any of the Jewish uh, histories and really is first mentioned in the New Testament. And the scholars say that there would have been probably, by a conservative estimate, about 300 people that would have lived there. So if you think Moscow's a small town, but then you head out on the Troy Highway and you get to Troy, you realize it's, you know, that's a really small town. If you keep going, you know, the towns get smaller until the time you get out to like, you know, Beauville, it's just like three people and a dog. Well, lots of dogs and few people, but, you know, so... I mean, it's like there's there's small towns and then there's really small towns. Well, Nazareth was a really small town, about 300 people. Another interesting thing about it, though, is they were not deeply religious. 
They weren't super pious. They did have a synagogue, but in the Talmud, which was written much later um, about the region, uh, region in Galilee, not Nazareth specifically, but about the entire region, it says that it is an uninteresting place, this is in the Talmud, not particularly pious. So people up in the region of Galilee were just like we are, doing our lives, you know, going fishing, uh, working, going to school, maybe, you know, whatever they did. And they were involved in a trade, like Jesus was a carpenter, so he would have learned a trade, but not particularly pious. They weren't known for their, you know, massive revivals or their big churches, their mega churches. This, this is a little town in which Jesus uh, grew up and he knew everyone in town. And you'll find out a little bit more about that in a second. Now, it's interesting that John, uh, John 1, 46, uh, the, the disciple, before the disciple, uh, Nathaniel and Philip actually followed Jesus. Uh, they had some things to say about Nazareth. Uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come of Nazareth and Philip said to him well hey come and see so even in the New Testament Nazareth kind of gets a little bit of a bad rap like hey it's kind of that like sketchy place you know can anything good come out of that yes Jesus is good come and see so how do the people in Nazareth then see Jesus in verse 2 we'll start to kind of find out and on the Sabbath Jesus began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him they were astonished wow he's a great teacher saying, where did this man get these things? What, what is this wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? So a couple things. First of all, they're amazed at the quality of his teaching. He is speaking well. He is articulate. He is flowing in the supernatural. When he speaks, he captures their attention. And they see that and they're noting that, right? They're not just, they're not just like critical. They're saying he is doing some amazing things. The second thing is, is that they've clearly heard a lot about Jesus. At this point in his ministry, he's pretty popular. He's got like, you know, some people that follow his blog and some folks that have subscribed to his YouTube channel. And, and anyway, just the crowds of people that would have followed Jesus back in those days indicated that, you know, he was a popular dude. And they knew that back in Nazareth, but they're gonna, that's where the compliments end. So verse two, in verse three, they start to kind of ratchet down and like go hardball against his family. So they say, is this not just a carpenter? That's who he is. The son of Mary, you know, Mary, she's that one, she lives down on fifth street, Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, like, you know, those guys, you know, remember them? Like, they all grew up together. We know, we know Jesus. That's the, that's Jesus from junior high school. Jesus, that's the Jesus that, you know, would like have brownie batter all over his face at six years old, you know, like Jesus. Uh, it's hard sometimes to look at a boy and see beyond the boy to the man. And so these are people that had grown up with Jesus and seen him, you know, just kind of do ordinary things. And they're saying like, hey, we know him. We know his brothers. You know, what's up with that? And even his sisters, are they not here with us? And so then it says, and they took offense at him. So they started to be offended by God. Oh yeah, he's teaching, but you know, where's all this wisdom coming from? Because he is just ordinary, plain old carpenter Jesus. Lots of facts, by the way, about him. Lots of facts and information about Jesus. Like, Joseph. Anybody ever heard of Joseph before today? Like, is this the first time? Nobody. Like, no hands are up. So, so basically, what I'm saying is that these people know more facts about Jesus than you do because they knew who Joseph was. You don't. 
And so they had a lot of facts about Jesus, but they did not understand him. They took offense at him. I remember talking to a friend of mine and uh, I was sharing Jesus with them and he says, he says, Jesus offends me. I thought, well, that was interesting. I'd never heard anybody say that Jesus offended them before, but kind of digging a little deeper, he said, the reason he offends me is this idea that I need a savior. Like there's something wrong with me. Like I'm broken. Like that offends me. I don't need a savior. And I think my answer was like, I was surprised, but I said, you know, well, what if you were drowning, you know? Uh, then wouldn't you like welcome a savior at that point? Wouldn't you want somebody to rescue you? So maybe the issue is you don't believe you're drowning. And it kind of, we got into discussion. I can't remember really how he received that, but I do remember that he was offended. And, and, and I think that a lot of people are. Sometimes we talk about a God, and in a generic sense, we're just talking about a deity, and you can pour all kinds of meaning into that term God, but when you lay out Jesus, and you say Jesus, you kind of know exactly, you know, who you're talking about. There's a target there, and Jesus was offensive. Jesus is offensive. God, yeah, we can do a lot of God talk, get all spiritual, talk about spirituality. I'm a spiritual person. But when we start talking about Jesus, it gets real, doesn't it? Right? Ever had those conversations? It gets real when you talk about Jesus. And so they were saying that, like, hey, this Jesus got a lot of facts about him. You know, I don't really know him. We never had a, we never hung out. We don't go to Starbucks. We don't hang out. But he, uh, uh, he offends me. And so uh, they, they really rejected him. Um, and moving on to verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Basically, Jesus is saying like, it's not just you guys. When I go home, I get it from my siblings, you know? I mean, it's not a comfortable situation. Like, I don't just open the Bible and start teaching and little, little brother Joseph's weird. I just, I kind of get, I love that name. And James, you know, like they, they just respect me and listen to me. They don't. You know, I have, I have trouble at home too. And the, the idea there is that, um, and he says in verse five, he could do no work there. He could do no mighty work there. So first of all, back in verse two, remember they said that he does mighty works everywhere. They acknowledge that wherever Jesus goes, there's mighty works that follow. Jesus goes, mighty works follow. But then he gets to Nazareth and there's something about it. Like I can't really explain to you what happened there, but Jesus kind of was like, yeah, I don't really, I can't do anything here. Like, I don't want to, these people just don't, they don't believe. And he marveled at their unbelief. And so what he, what happens is that he laid on hands on a few people that were sick and healed them. And, and then he says in verse six, he marveled because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. Now, the thing is, is that we all know faith is extremely powerful. Faith is that thing, it's that in action, God uses it to channel what he wants to do in our lives uh, through faith. And example would be like uh, anybody in Hebrews chapter 11 in the, in the Faith Hall of Fame, but like Abraham, you know, faith in God, he's gonna trust in God for the life of his son. God makes him a father of many nations. You could just go on and on. You know, Noah had faith in God and so um, he became the lineage of just a generation of blessing, uh, multiple generations is in a new covenant through Noah and his lineage and all that. And so all kinds of faith. And we know that faith is extremely powerful, but so is Unbelief. Unbelief is incredibly powerful just in the opposite direction. It can literally sh shut down or be a tourniquet on the blood flow of God's blessing in your life. There is, um, there is a sense in which we need to understand that although faith is powerful, so is unbelief. 
Some people believe in God. Some people believe in God, but they do not know Jesus Christ at all. They profess to know him, but they don't know him. Brandon alluded to that last week. The thing is, it's like I believed, there was a time in my life where I believed in Sarah, but I did not know her. I believed in Sarah, but I did not know her. So there was a guy working for me. Uh, he had a girlfriend. Uh, his girlfriend knew that he, she called me a Jesus freak. And so she had a friend of hers and she said, my friend Sarah is a Jesus freak too. You, you, Scott should really meet him. And so she, they tried to set us up. And I said, before you set, set me up, like I'm not really um, looking right now and, you know, but it's in, intriguing. They told me all about her and everything. Well, she, why don't you send me a picture? So uh, she sent me a picture. She'd just been out camping with her horses just out in the mud for a while. It was rainy and everything. And they, she took a picture of Sarah camping and sent it to me. And I looked, I'd love to tell you that the very first thing I did as I looked at that picture, I'm like, whoo, baby, I gotta have, I got, we got a date, that girl, right? But, but she was muddy and uh, it was, I don't know why she took and sent me that picture, but then I saw it and I was kind of like, well, I'll do it for Gabe. You know, I'll do it for my friend. So... Uh, so we're sitting there, and, and by the way, we met in a bar. I'm just going to be honest about that. Uh, so we, we decided to meet at Red Hook Brewery in, in Woodenville, and I remember sitting there uh, at a table, and I'm waiting, and I'm nervous. I'm really nervous. I don't do, like, the setup thing very well. And, uh, and in walks this girl. And at first, I didn't recognize her because I said, wow, she's really cute. She's got red hair. And then uh, she's really, wow, she's, she's adorable. She's gorgeous. And she started coming closer, and I realized, Oh my goodness, that's the same girl in the picture. Whoa, hottie alert. And she was, and all of a sudden, um, so, I, so at that point, right, I did not know Sarah. I knew that she existed. I knew that, uh, I believed in her. I knew that she was there, but I, I did not know her. I knew that she liked horses, but I did not know her. And now, here we are, we're 15 years later, 15 of the best years of my life, and I know Sarah so well, better than I know anyone. I could be in a room with like 50 women, and uh, if they're all talking, like my ears just immediately tune to like hearing Sarah's voice, and I can hear it clearly. I know my wife. I know what she sounds like. I know what she smells like. I know like any given restaurant that we walk into exactly what she's going to order. I do. I mean, I know like quirky things about Sarah. Like she is absolutely nuts about symmetry. You know, like she will fix if something's off or not symmetrical, she will try to fix it if she can. She hates lack of symmetry. She is weird that way. Um, if uh, she... She hates it when I put the wrong thing in the recycling bin. I mean, every time. Like, you, I have told you how many times, Scott, you cannot put a greasy pizza box in the recycling bin. You can't do it. And I still do it. I still forget to do it. And she still corrects me every time. I know that about her. I know that um, if I leave the water running, she will turn into Satan. <laughs> she does. She's like, uh, you can't leave the water running. We're paying for that water. And she's right. And, and I know that about her. I know her so well. But what's amazing is, is that after 15 years, I'm still getting to know her. And it's still one of the great joys of life is when you find somebody that you love and you're committed to, is that, un, that knowing them and unraveling that is one of the great joys of a relationship. And in the same thing, like so, so um, this is where I want to stop and say that this, God knows everything there is to know about you. 
I mean, he knows every, he knows the order of your, of every cell in your body, of every molecule. God knows it. He knows what animates you. He knows what excites you. He knows what depresses you and frustrates you. He understands the cycle of your whole, like, energy, waking, sleeping, you know, like, needing to rest cycle. What do they call that? Circadian rhythms. God knows all that. Like all the mysteries of, of your body and what it takes to be you and what aches and hurts and what doesn't and the lumbar spines and the whole thing. God knows it all. He knows and he knows you. More than that, he knows your heart. He knows, you know, what, um, what interests you. He knows what creates joy in you. He knows what you're, you're fascinated by and what you're not fascinated by. And he knows you. But the question is, is this, do you know him? Because inasmuch as God, our creator, our sustainer, wants us to know him as he knows us. And the question is, do you know God? I want to kind of break into three categories just to help us understand the distinction of belief versus unbelief. Number one, the very first thing is people will believe in God, but they don't know him. They believe in God, but they don't know him. They believe in him. So the Bible says that even the demons believe in God. They, the Bible says that they shudder. They, like, they get scared. Like They know. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus. When the demons see Jesus, they're like, oh, no, Jesus. You know, they know him. But there's this, there's this peculiar creature that I've found since I've been a pastor. Actually, I knew about it before I was a pastor, but I've seen it so many times. And that is the cultural Christian, the person that they love the idea of Christianity or churchianity. They love hanging out with Jesus' people. They love people like them. They just want to be around like people that are basically good and that, you know, they just want to be around. And so, so the whole church culture, the songs that we sing, the music that we play, the, the way that it's all functions, like there's a sense in which we can fall in love with that. And, and so it becomes uh, kind of an idea in which you know, we get hooked on the cultural side of it, a cultural Christian. And maybe uh, some people are Christian just because that's who they identify with. Well, I'm not a Muslim, not really an atheist yet, but I do. Um, I, I'm a Christian. And they'll say, like, I belong to this denomination. Well, so what's your religion? What do you believe? And they'll be like, I, I believe I'm a Methodist. You know, and, you, and that's fine. So, so that is a cultural Christian. It's a mindset. I think some, sometimes it is just being comfortable with the people that we like to be around. Just the, the, the certain kind of people that make us feel uh, like ourselves. Or they challenge us a little bit. It's the kind of people that say, I know a lot about God. I have the facts. I know about him. I can, I can rattle off Bible verses even. But I, I, I think that the issue with the cultural Christian and the reason why I'm so fascinated by it and, and so kind of heartbroken by it is because they're kind of missing heaven by 18 inches, you know? Like, like here is the head knowledge, but they're not, it's not here yet. You know, they know about him. They, can, they know facts about him, but they don't know it here. I ran into somebody um, who used to be an ex-pastor, and he's no longer a pastor. In fact, he's not walking with Jesus anymore. And I said, well, why is that? And I mean, this guy, immediately he starts launching into this really complex theological reasons and like all of these things. And I kind of was like, wait a second, like I wanted to hear about your heart. But what I think had happened, and I'm not judging my friend or anything, but that I think what happened is he began to sort of process things up in his mind and he lost the heart. He lost the heart relationship with Jesus. That's my guess. But it happens all the time. So there are people who believe in God, but they don't know him. The second category, which is maybe a little bit more prevalent here in this, in this room, is those who believe in God, but they don't know him 
very well. I don't know him very well. A few years ago, many years ago, eight years ago, um, I had uh, the opportunity to meet with a group of people over at the Microsoft campus. I used to have a business in Redmond, Washington, and uh, so not same city that Microsoft is in. And they invited just a bunch of business leaders to come to this, to this uh, like luncheon. And so I went and I was like really surprised. There's only like 25, 30 people there. And I'm sitting at a table with about eight chairs and uh, the director of communications came in and sort of introduced himself and started talking about why they wanted to kind of just gather business leaders together and just appreciating Redmond or whatever. I can't, I can't really remember anything because then in walks out of nowhere, Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer walks in, and I don't, does anybody know who that is? He used to be the CEO of Microsoft, it was right after Bill Gates, not Satya Nadella, but it was before that, it was Steve Ballmer. Anybody ever, you just for fun, go to YouTube when you get home today and, and just search YouTube for Steve Ballmer, and you will see the craziest stuff. This guy is known for, anybody ever seen a Steve Ballmer video, right? Somebody in the first service, they started going, developers, 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 developers. It was like, he does crazy stuff like that. So there's this one video, Video of him just running around kind of like a monkey and he's just drenched in sweat and like it's pouring off of his face and he, he's just massively like to say type A is not doing it justice like this guy is intense so when he came in the room I was like Oh man, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to tell all my friends about it. And so he came in, he sat down at the same table I was sitting at and it ca- the only thing I kept thinking is this guy's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. And he's, you know, he went around the table and uh, I think we were like two chairs apart. He asked me you know, who I was and what company I was, uh, I was from. And when I said it, he actually knew where we were located, which I was blown away. I was like, he knows, he knows my company. He knows he's heard of my business. I don't know how he did. But anyway, he started like rattling off all these statistics. He turned, anyway, he turned into this very, he was a very, this nice person, right? Very intense, but not at all Mr. Sweated Out. Like that's just a stage thing. But in real life, you know, he's actually very, uh, very smart and engaging, still very, still intense and very profane. Like every other word was the F-bomb. I mean, I'm not joking. Like it was, it was so profane, but, uh, but we had a nice conversation and and um, at the end of it, I just I was on cloud nine for like the next week. I came back into the office and I was like, uh, so where were you? And I was going to Microsoft and, um, you know, just hanging out with my, my friend Steve. Steve, Steve Ballmer? Yeah, Steve Ballmer's my buddy. You know, we know each other now and we're on a first name basis. And we talked for about 15 minutes. And I just remember like being on cloud nine thinking, I know Steve, I know a billionaire. I know Steve Ballmer. The truth is, is that th- this, is, this is the truth, right? I didn't, I don't really know him. I mean, that sounds nice to say, but I don't really know what makes him tick. I don't know what motivates him. I don't know anything about him. In fact, even after that, like if we would have passed each other on the street, I would have known him. Hey, Steve, what's up? And he would have never remembered my name, right? So I knew about him. He did not know me and we didn't really know each other. I knew more about him. I was closer to him and we'd had a conversation a while back, but do I know Steve Ballmer today? Do I have him on my phone? Can I call him up and say, hey buddy, Steve, you want, I love, so I fantasized about that. Wouldn't that be really cool to get him on speakerphone right in front of Canyon Creek Church? 
and just have him go, yeah, I don't know, that'd be really cool, but I can't because I don't know him. That's my point, is that there's some people that we've been informed about them, we know them through some kind of a public image, but we don't really know the, who they are. And so there's people that have been informed about Jesus, but they haven't been transformed by him, so they only have an understanding on a very shallow level of who he is. And when you go deeper with Jesus, you realize that he's all about transformation. Maybe your mother and father imparted some knowledge to you. You know about Jesus. You've sure been to church. You can talk about all of the Sunday school type lessons that you've learned. You can put the Bible together in a meaningful way. You grew up, you went to confirmation or whatever, whatever it was, but you never owned it yourself. You never like found him for yourself. My big prayer is that my son someday, he's not Pastor Scott's kid, he is on fire for Jesus because he owns it for himself. Galatians chapter four, Paul is talking to a group that's like this, and he can say it so well, verse, verse eight and through nine. Uh, he's talking to the Galatians, he's saying, formerly, when you did not know God, you didn't know anything about God, in fact, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not even God's. He's saying like you didn't know, you not only didn't know God, the people that you thought were gods, they weren't even gods. You had no knowledge. You didn't know anything. And then he goes on in verse nine. But now that you've come to know God, all right, so, you, so then he kind of backs off. He says, or rather known by God. So you say you know him, but really he knows more about you than you know about him. He knows all about you, but you don't really know him that well. And then he says, how, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And so this is kind of like, you know, you ever met somebody like a person that used to follow Jesus and they were passionately in love with him or they knew about him, they transformed, and then all of a sudden they're kind of turning back and going in the wrong direction. You just want to say like, what are you thinking you know, how can you be turning back to the old ways? And, and this is what Paul is saying in this, in this verse is that, you know, you're, you're going back again to the weak and the worthless elementary, the basic principles of the world. You, you don't really know Jesus at all. The biblical, word, the biblical word for getting closer to Jesus is sanctification, sanctification or sanctify. And what does that mean? It really means to be transformed by the spirit of God to be conformed more like Jesus. And the way that that happens is getting to know him more, getting to know him more. If you're that person that you're not interested in the word of God, you're not interested in the things of God, you know lots of facts about him, you can rattle off like the, Nazareth, the, the Nazarethites, you know, that he, you know, who his brothers are and his sisters, and oh, Mary, that one, you know, he's a carpenter, like, we, you know, all the facts about Jesus. But when it comes to knowing him and being able to explain the passionate, like, relationship with Jesus, you don't have it. You don't have it at all. And that's, that's what sanctification is, is you become more like Jesus through time. The third category, and I would hope that all of us aspire to kind of head in this direction, and so many of you guys are in that category. You know Jesus, but you don't know him that well, and then this is the category three that I hope we all aspire to, and that is that we believe in God, we know him intimately, and we serve him totally. We know him intimately, and we serve him totally. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. If you know Jesus and you're walking with him, you begin to recognize certain things. Like if I, if I talk about being led by the Spirit and you understand that at a deep level and know what that means, then you probably are in this category. If, you, if I say, what does it mean to walk by faith and not by flesh, not by sight? 
If that goes, yeah, I totally get that because I know Jesus. If you don't know him, maybe that seems like a foreign concept to you. To be convicted of sin, just to be feeling bad about like, I'm heading in the wrong direction here. I'm doing something that grieves the heart of God and I'm sorry about it. I'm gonna turn and, and, and repent and move in a different direction. I'm gonna abandon that thing because it doesn't please God anymore. If that's you, and that's the way that you respond to sin, the chances are that you believe in God, you know him intimately and you serve him totally. If you recognize that God's hand is on your day from the moment that you wake up, that God is ordering your thoughts and who you are, that in conversations with people, you begin to sense him in it, right? If that's it, then you probably are in this category. You maybe just out of nowhere decide to care for somebody. You don't know where that's coming from. You just care. You just do. Like all of a sudden, I care for the homeless. I care for the poor. I, I, it's just a supernatural peace that you have. That's, that comes from knowing Jesus. It comes from being transformed by him. His word becoming a part of your life, becoming hidden in your heart, transforming you. That is how you recognize that you are in love with Jesus. You're knowing him. You're serving him intimately. Knowing him intimately, you're serving him totally. That's how you know. I want you to listen to a man in the Old Testament who knows God intimately he needs God. He longs for God. It's in Psalm 63. And as I read this, uh, I'm not going to read it like you would a dry, um, dry prose. Just where I say, you know, just as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, oh God. Like that, right? I mean, I'm not going to read it like that. I'm going to read it like I picture the psalmist wanted it read. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, O God. My flesh, it faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love, it is better than life itself. Beholding your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips my lips will praise you. They will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Isn't that so much different from, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I go to church. I go to Chi Alpha. I hang out with some good people. I volunteered. Read some magazines. I listened to the Christian radio station. I have really good friends. They're Christians. It just doesn't ring true unless it comes from the heart like the psalmist does. That's what I want. Like, I want my heart to be aligned with that, with that psalm. I really do. And how do I get from knowing facts about him? And yeah, I've been theologically trained. It didn't help me one bit to know Jesus more. It helped me to know a lot about him, but there was a lot of people that I noticed that were in my school knowing a lot and learning a lot about Hebrew and Greek and theological concepts. And then at the end of it, we could talk to you about, you know, big words, multiplex canonical, longitudinal method of hermeneutics or whatever, you know, like we could talk about all that. That's a real thing, by the way. See, I, you know, it's worth, worth a little bit of money there, I guess. But then they just dropped out. I didn't know him anymore. And the thing is, is that you, we, we, you know, we can learn big concepts, but our God is immeasurable. 
in his depth and his love for us. And he sustains us not in the facts, he sustains us in the, in the relationship with him. And by the way, growing in knowledge with God is part of the Christian life. I hope that you do that. I hope that you get an education. I hope that you grow and read and study and disciple and all that. But that's, that's the, that comes out of the love of Jesus. And so, so here's the thing, do you know him? Like that psalmist says, I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than anything else I do. Better than the music I listen to, better than the chicks I date, better than the movies I see, better than the exercises I, I uh, regiment that, I, that I'm involved in, better than anything else, better than life itself. Your steadfast love is better. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That is so much more compelling. I want that. Now, here's the thing. Like, what you call God tells me a lot about your relationship with God. It tells me a lot about your intimacy with God. It's a, it's a really good indicator, like, what you call God. Now, where am I going with that? Well, so if, you, uh, if I pick up my phone and the person on the other, other end of the phone says, um, hey, Mr. Underwood, right away I know one thing. You don't know me very well. Because nobody calls me Mr. Underwood except for maybe my bank or my investment advisor or something like that. Because they don't, that's too formal. But if I pick up my phone and somebody says, Pastor Scott, wait a second. They know something about me, right? They know I'm a pastor. They know something about me. I'm Pastor Scott. But if you call me Scott, I'm fine with that too. I love it when people do. It kind of is the default thing. If I walked around this room, most people would say either Pastor Scott or they would say Scott. Either one is fine. It tells me that you know something about me. You probably know me better if you're calling me Scott. But there is only one person on planet earth who calls me daddy because he knows me at a whole different level. I've been for 11 years praying with him, knowing him, seeing him grow. He knows me. He can kind of tell when I'm irritable. He can kind of tell when I'm happy. He knows how to pull at my different, you know, like he, he just, he knows me and he calls me daddy. We have that relationship. Now, if you call God the big guy upstairs, the big guy in the sky, you know, you do some Ricky Bobby Talladega nights, like two, two, six pounds, five ounce baby Jesus, you know, like whatever that is, you know, that, it tells me something. It tells me about your heart. It tells me about how, you know, it indicates to me where you're at in terms of knowing God. Because if you refer to God as the big guy up in the sky, it says something about your relationship with him. But if you are the person that you know, you know your savior, you call him father, you call him savior, you call him friend, he's your friend, you call him a healer, you call him a comforter, you call him Lord, you call him king. Even more, the Bible has this very special designation that it says we can approach God and call him Abba, which means, it just means daddy. It really, it really is an amazing word. That God can look at us in the face, in our identity, and, and see a child, and that child looks up at Heavenly Father and says, Abba, Daddy. And I could just, in that moment, I see him almost like embracing us in a whole new way. If you, if you say, Daddy, it reflects how well you know him. Deeper and deeper understandings of who he is changes how you speak of him, how you talk about him, how you relate to him. Many times if you're going through... Um, you know, that 
that really scary moment where you're entering into a, a, a conversation about Jesus and it seems like you don't have the right words to say. Uh, you know, for one thing, it takes practice, just keep doing it. But secondly, you know, how are you talking about God to that person? Because, you know, I didn't really go, this, go there in the first service, but I think you guys can handle this idea is that there is something about being authentically and authentically knowing God that translates into our experience of talking about him. Uh, one of my favorite pastors of all time uh, was this guy, Pastor Buntain, and he was kind of my ministry hero. And one time uh, I asked him, I had a chance to ask him, I said, what, how, how do you, how, why are you so charismatic? Everybody seems to like want to listen to you and follow you. And he looked at me and he says, well, do you know what, Scott? Just pray out loud. And it was like this light bulb went off and it's like, pray out loud. And he said, and the reason why he said that is because as you learn to verbally articulate uh, spiritual, uh, you know, spiritual yearnings in your heart, you will begin to like be able to talk to people about the things of God and it will resonate as being true. Does that make sense to you guys? Like, I mean, it, you know, the more that you talk about God, the more that you interact with him and you know him, the easier it's going to be to have spiritual conversations. But if you go to somebody and you go like, and they say, well, why do you go to church? Uh, you know, just kind of into the whole God thing, I guess, you know, it's not compelling, right? But if you can sit down and you can say, I will tell you how Jesus means to me. He's everything to me. He changed me, transformed me. You know, I'd love to talk to you about him. That's a completely different direction, right? That's going to go somewhere. That's going to bear fruit. But if you just say, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. No, he's not your homeboy. Get off of that. He's not a homeboy. He's your savior. He's the risen king. He's the Lord of Lords, right? Then you need to know him. You need to know him. My prayer is that you get to know him and, the, and you will you know, begin to like feel the heart of God. You will, you know, your heart will break for the things that break his heart. You will start caring for the things that you didn't care about before. You will start to have a burden for like the poor and the outcast. You will care about things that you didn't even imagine. My prayer for you is the same prayer that Paul said in Ephesians 1.17. I'm just gonna read it to you. It's not gonna be on the screen, but just kind of as I read it, this is my prayer for you. This is Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Man, what a prayer. That according to the working of his great might, that you would have immeasurable riches in Christ. Paul said it like this. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, not knowing about him, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says this, he says, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And by the way, that word rubbish in the Greek, it kind of translates roughly to crap. It really does. It's garbage. It means a garbage heap. That's what it means. Sorry to say it. It's just, that's what it means. And Paul says, compared to knowing Christ, everything else, my experience is like, it's all kind of just a garbage heap compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. What does it look like when people see Jesus and they just run after him and they recognize him and they know him? Mark chapter six, kind of going to the end of the chapter now in verse 53, and I'll close with these thoughts. This is what it looks like when a crowd, this is 
contrast to Nazareth here, we're now moving down 53 more verses. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and they moored to the shore. Okay, now they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're far, far from Nazareth. They're in an area they've already been before and everybody knows who Jesus is. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Wow, that's Jesus. He's back. Oh my goodness, let's go, let's go find, you know, and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds. Let's find people who are sick. Let's find people that are needy. Let's bring them to Jesus wherever they heard he was. The word got around. He was super popular. And when they came in, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And then get this, because remember back in Nazareth, Jesus said that like, you know, I guess I can do a few miracles, but I really, because of the unbelief, there's not much I can do here. And here, it's just touch the garment. Like even if you just brush up against Jesus's clothes, you'll be healed. Every, it is many that touched it were made well. I love that. The difference is what? The difference is they knew Jesus. They recognized him and they knew what he and who he was. How about you? Do you know who Jesus is? Where are you in that continuum? Are you, do you just know about God? Do you know facts about God? You know the Bible stories. You grew up in a Christian family. You pray sometimes, but it, you don't know him. And maybe you know him, but you don't know him very well. You want to get to know him better. The idea of being passionately devoted to God and seeking after him, you would love that. You would love to drink deeply from that reality in your life. And my prayer for you is that you could move up and get to know him more. It's worth it. He is worth it. I want to pray for you right now. Jesus, some in this room can talk about you better than I can. I mean, maybe you could even get up and deliver an amazing sermon. I don't know you and their hearts are far from you and their hearts don't beat as one with your heart. And Lord, that, that is the person right now I'm praying for, God, that you would reveal the true nature of who you are, not a fantasy, not, not a Sunday school Jesus, not a movie Jesus, but the real Jesus invade their hearts today to move them to a place of knowing you. And God, for those people in this room that they know you, but they don't know you well, Lord, that they would begin to see that there's so much better. There's so much that God, the rest of it all compared to knowing you, the surpassing greatness of knowing you, it's really just kind of all rubbish. That I might gain Christ and be found in him is the words of Paul. God, let us let us understand that. Let us live it out by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.